0: Are you loyal to a fault? Uh, Does your your loyalty blind you? Does your loyalty blind you from seeing that your favorite local sports team is not, in all likelihood, going to hoist Lord Stanley's Cup again next season? Uh, Does your loyalty to the area's most popular sports team blind you from seeing that they are not... Uh, in all likelihood, going to win the Super Bowl. Maybe you're not a sports fan, but you're loyal to a fault in in other ways. Uh, Maybe you're just a bit too loyal to your political party. Maybe you're just a a bit too loyal to your favorite author. Maybe you're just a bit too loyal to your home state. Can you tell I don't want any of you to move away? Um, Maybe you're just a bit too loyal to something. Or someone. There there is such a thing as being loyal to a fault with people, places, and yes, even sports teams. But in point of fact, there is no such thing as being loyal to a fault with God. There's no such thing as being too loyal to God. In truth, the problem is not that we are too loyal to God. The problem is that we are not and haven't been perfectly loyal. As we'll learn in Deuteronomy chapter 31 this morning, the people of Israel are disloyal to God in heart, and therefore their judgment is predicted and prophesied by Moses. And the good news that we need to hear, believe, and receive today is this. Jesus has stood in our place. He has lived the life of perfect love and loyalty to God the Father for us and for our salvation. His lifelong loyal love for God and for us is why we follow him as our leader and give ourselves to him in loyal service to him and his kingdom. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from Deuteronomy 31. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you and invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 172. Page 172. In our text this morning, we are, are once again confronted with one of the principal reasons that we have the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is, in the words that are so often uh, used to refer to death in the Old Testament, Moses is, he is about to go the way of his fathers. Moses is a man preparing to die. And part of his preparations involve preaching this last sermon series to the people of Israel. All throughout this book, Moses has been reminding Israel through his preaching. He's been reminding Israel of God's love for them. Moses has been preaching God's love by reminding Israel of their redemption from slavery in Egypt. He's been preaching God's love by reminding Israel of God's provision and protection in the wilderness. He has been proclaiming God's love by reminding Israel of God's generosity by giving them his law. His law to live by. But Moses has been proclaiming something else too. While on the one hand, Moses has been proclaiming God loves his children. On the other hand, Moses has also been proclaiming and God's children are to love him. This love we have learned in the book of Deuteronomy means that Israel is to be faithful to the covenant. And the Lord of the covenant. Love and faithfulness, or we could say loyalty practically looks like the people of Israel keeping and living the law of God. I'm sure that you remember Jesus' words from John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, love shows itself, makes itself known through humble and happy obedience. That is what Jesus has done for sinners like us before God the Father. And we must keep him in view as our hope as we study God's word this morning. The the content of Deuteronomy 31 is focused on three particular matters, and they're all kind of interwoven throughout the chapter. The death of Moses is mentioned at least five times. The commissioning of Joshua takes place. It's mentioned at least three times. The Levites are called into service, and they too are mentioned multiple times in the chapter. And, And while Moses' death is presented uh, is, is, the, is presented as the initial problem in the chapter. We are given a clear path ahead for the people of Israel and their leaders. Israel can go on without Moses. And all in all, the message is clear. Though Moses will die, Israel has all it needs to follow the Lord in faith, to remain loyal to Yahweh. Though Moses will die, the Lord has given them the law, and He will raise up leaders who call on Israel to follow In faith and faithfulness, to love and loyalty. The question for Israel is this: will they remain loyal to the Lord, to Yahweh? We're gonna study Deuteronomy 31 in three sections under three headings. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 1 to 13, we'll look at Israel's leaders, the, the transition that will take place and the duties that they're to undertake. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 14 to 23, we'll look at God's call for Moses to, to write a song that stands as a witness against Israel. And in Deuteronomy 31 verses 24 to 29, we'll face head-on the issue of Israel's future loyalty to Yahweh. So if you're taking notes, these three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Leaders, lyrics, and loyalty. Let's begin with our first point concerning Israel's leaders. We'll first consider the first 13 verses of the chapter. and Let's begin with our first point. And for now, I just want to read verses 1 to 6. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for... It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. In this this section of verses, uh, Moses addresses Israel, Joshua, and the Levites. He reminds uh, Israel that he's going to die. And uh, those are the verses that we just read, verses 1 to 6. And Moses, he he then reminds Joshua that, that he will lead Israel into battle against the nation. That's verses 7 to 8 you see there. And then he, he reminds the Levites that they will lead Israel in fearing the Lord and keeping his commands. That's verses 9 to 13. And through all of these reminders, Moses is looking ahead, but he's also looking up. Moses is reminding Israel, Joshua, and the Levites of what is before them as they enter the land, this battle. But Moses is also reminding them that God is with them. And as Moses speaks to the people of Israel, he reminds them of his past and the painful reality of his present. With the mention that he's 120 years old, Moses reminds the people of Israel that he has been with them a long time. His physical strength is waning. He can no longer come in and go out, verse 2. Still, Moses' physical condition is not what is preventing him from entering the land. I'm sure you saw there. No, it was actually Moses' own disobedience when he struck the rock in Numbers chapter 20 that disbarred him from entering the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. He's presenting himself as a salutary warning to the people of Israel. It's as if he is saying, I disbelieved, I disobeyed, As you go in, do not fail as I have failed. Believe and obey. I love it that one of the last tasks of his long life is to encourage the people of Israel. To encourage them on to faith and faithfulness. And and if I may just ever so briefly speak to our dear older members, one of the things that I want to say to you is this. We love you. Uh, You are a model of faithfulness to us. Your willingness to turn up here as often as you can, fighting through fears and physical difficulties, is a testament, I think, to the strength of your faith. You are a testament to the strength of our God. And I want to encourage you to, to use whatever strength that the Lord has given you to keep pushing us and spurring us on toward love and good deeds. Let your last days... Be like Moses last days. Remind us of God's great faithfulness and push us to be faithful to him. Moses, he wants Israel to believe that God will go with them and fight for them. Moses reminds Israel of God's past faithfulness and their defeat over Sion and Og. Moses is saying, just as God did in the past, so he will do in the future. Just as he destroyed those kings, so he will destroy the kings of Canaan. The Israelites are not to believe or trust in their own strength. That's not what it means to be strong and courageous. Moses is calling Israel to trust in the strength of the Lord. He's not calling them to trust in what they are competent to do. But calling Israel to trust in what God has promised he will do. You see there verse 3. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He ...will destroy these nations. Verse 4, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og. Verse 5, the Lord will give them over to you. Verse 6, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. You see, the battle belongs to the Lord. Moses doesn't leave the matter there. He essentially reiterates this same message personally to Joshua... ...you see there in verse 7, in the sight of all Israel. This personal and public encouragement was pastorally wise of Moses... Here, Moses is visibly placing the mantle of leadership upon Joshua. But let's think carefully about the encouragements that Moses has given to Israel and Joshua. I'm sure you notice the repeated phrases, Do not fear, be strong and courageous, he will not leave you or forsake you. These encouragements were most immediately related to Joshua and Israel as they purposed to undertake the conquest of the promised land. But, But what relationship do they have to us? Right, as the New Testament people of God, we're not called to go and physically fight and to take over a piece of property in the Middle East. No, but we are called to go and conquer the nations in the power of the gospel, as we've sung this morning. We are called to go and proclaim the good news, to wage war against Satan, and to rescue sinners from his enslaving grasp. So, brothers and sisters, let's, let's go joyfully and boldly and courageously Proclaim the good news. We we do not go trusting in our own wisdom or on our own words, but we go trusting in God and his power to break hard hearts by pouring out his Holy Spirit. The conquest belongs to him. Conversion belongs in his hands, not ours. So, so we we faithfully proclaim and leave the fruit to him. He has promised that his gospel will be proclaimed. Among the nations, we're evidence of that here this morning. He has promised that His gospel will be proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. So let's teach and tell others about Jesus with faith that He will do just that. Still, there is there's a way in which we, as the New Testament people of God, ought to apply this encouragement that we will that He will never leave us or forsake us. It is true that our God is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet the the writer to the Hebrews applies this passage of Scripture in an altogether surprising way in Hebrews chapter 13. It was the the passage that we read earlier in the service. If If you remember our reading of Hebrews 13, the writer to the Hebrews exhorted beleaguered believers to express brotherly love, to show hospitality, to care for those in prison, to protect marriage through sexual fidelity and guard against being lovers of money. After those exhortations, he told readers why they should pursue holiness by quoting our passage, Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 and 8. He told them why. He said, because God will not leave you or forsake you. So do you understand what the writer of the Hebrews is teaching new covenant believers like you and me? In in our battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, we need to know that God is with us. He will strengthen us and help us. He will uphold us with his righteous right hand. He will enable us to overcome as Jesus has overcome the world. And so we should courageously march on, fighting against our own sin and our own sinful temptations. In our pursuit of holiness, we do not trust in our own strength and power. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as Israel and Joshua were encouraged in the face of a daunting future, So the writer to the Hebrews encourages us to entrust ourselves to our God who holds our future securely in his hands. So Christian, you need to know this. God will not leave you or forsake you. This law of love that God gave to his people was to be read and remembered every seven years. We see this here in association, it was to be read and remembered in association with the Feast of Booths, which was uh, a feast that celebrated God's sustaining presence with his people in the wilderness. The law was to be read to everyone in Israel, from the greatest to the least, from the youngest to the oldest. Everyone was to be present to hear the law read. And what we're looking at here is, is likely a reading of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the book we're reading now, Deuteronomy. Why were the people of Israel to do this? Well, one reason is certainly that God commanded it, uh, but another reason you see there is given in verse 12. It's, it's actually repeated in verse 13. Why should God's people read God's word? God, God's people should read God's word so that they may hear and learn and fear. There's a reason. When, when used to speak of, of God's people, Uh, relating to him, fear in the Bible does not mean that they should be terrified that that he will destroy them. No, it means that they should properly honor and revere God. Uh, That means to to, to worship and exalt him as he deserves. So, So the first reason God's people should read God's word is so that they may know who he is and understand the worship he deserves. But the second reason that God's people should read God's word is right there at the end of verse 12. God's people should read God's word so that they may be careful to do all the words of his law. God did not reveal his will and his way so that his people could live according to their own will and way. No, God gave his commands so that they may be kept. And this is for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And it strikes me that there's plenty of application here for us. First, notice how the leaders of God's people, the Levites, are, are given this charge to publicly read God's word. This reminds me of what we read uh, the Apostle Paul saying to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. There Paul writes, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. See, so this is why we regularly read God's word in our services. And the elders of ABC are, are committed to this. And do you know why? Because this is one of God's primary means of revealing his character and his commands. This is how we learn to fear and follow Jesus. God uses this very ordinary means of just reading. He uses it in extraordinary ways in our lives. There's no law, uh, but it seems to be incredibly wise to commit to reading regularly through God's word in its entirety. Maybe doing so every seven years, as we see here. Maybe that's a wise idea. Maybe doing so even more frequently would be wise, too. If you don't know where to begin with Bible reading, let me just say that Genesis 1-1 is a great place to start. I mean, God started there, so it can't be a bad place to start, right? Right? Um, You can also consider signing up for uh, Discipleship 001, so it's even less than 101, Discipleship 001. Both men and women can be involved in this project. It's going to be a weekly email assignment. Um, It's it's assigning a a Bible passage for you to read, uh, a list of questions for you just to reflect on as you've read God's Word, some prayer prompts, uh, scripture memory, and even, yes, a catechism. Um, if if you're able to gather uh, with a group of men or women throughout the week for accountability in in reading God's Word, then that's great. But if not, you can still get the emails as a prompt and a guide for for what to read and reflect on throughout the week. Either way, the the point is simple. If God's people of old, if God's people of old read through the Scripture that they had, then so should we. Uh, We have more Scripture than they did. That's true. But this is not something to complain about. Rather, it's something to rejoice in. We simply have a longer love letter from our Lord. More evidence of his faithfulness and more of his precious promises. What a privilege to read his word. Notice too that in verse 13, God's word was to be passed down to successive generations. We too should be committed to, that passing, uh, to passing down God's word. This is certainly the, the primary responsibility of mothers and fathers, moms and dad. Uh, make sure you're carving out time to read God's Word with your children. Teach, take, and tell them the good news of Jesus. But as a corporate body, as a corporate body of believers, we're, we're also committed to passing down uh, God's Word to the next generation. That's one of the reasons we have Sunday school. We're obviously taking a break right now in the month of August, but we'll pick it back up in earnest the second week of September. And we, we still need some teachers In both the middle and high school classes. So feel free to to jump in and join this project. This good work of passing down God's word to the next generation. Well Moses has addressed Israel and her leaders. He's addressed Joshua and the Levites. He has comforted them with God's power and presence as they look forward to the conquest. He's also challenged Joshua and the Levites to lead. Trusting in the Lord and teaching his law to subsequent generations. But then in verse 14, we move from Moses speaking to God speaking. In verses 14 to 23, God instructs Moses to write a song. So let's turn and consider our second point, which is just simply titled lyrics. And as we do, let's begin by reading Deuteronomy 31, just verses 14 to 19 for now. Beginning there in verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, The days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise And whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done. Because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Now, that the top and the tail of verses 14 to 23 are marked by the commissioning of Joshua. That's what we see there in verses 14 and 15. And if you skip down to verse 23, you'll see Joshua commissioned there. The hearty middle of these verses are focused upon Moses being commissioned to write a song. And the reason why Joshua is brought into view here is because it's not enough for Moses to commission Joshua in the side of the people. No, the Lord would establish Joshua's role as Israel's next leader. And that's why he's also brought into view with respect to this song. The song that Moses... And subsequently, Joshua would have to teach the people of Israel as found in the very next chapter in Deuteronomy 32. And Lord willing, we'll turn and study that text and song next week. But for now, we're introduced to the reason for the song and the role that it will play in the future. Verse 16 begins to open up for us the reason why God instructed Moses to write this song. In the years after Moses' death, the people of Israel will reject Yahweh. They will reject the sovereign God who loved them enough to rescue them from slavery. They will reject the compassionate God who loved them enough to to lead them through the wilderness. They will reject the, the generous God who loved them enough to give them the land promised to Abraham. And they will do this by going after other gods. Verse 16. And let's be sure to notice just how how personal this is. Look again at those words at the end of verse 16. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. See, any rejection of God is personal. We can't interact with God as though he is some distant being. No, he is our maker. He is the maker of each one of us here in this room. And if we reject him, we are personally rejecting him. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. He knows us by name. And if we turn away from him, if we reject him, if we forsake him, it's personal. Now Moses has just promised the people of Israel that God will not leave them or forsake them in the conquest. He'll be with them every step of the way as they fight and battle in Canaan. But what God is telling Moses here is that after the people of Israel have conquered and settled in the land, they will forsake God. Look at verse 20. In this verse, we see something that we've seen before in the book of Deuteronomy. In verse 20, we see that fullness and fatness can lead to forgetfulness and forsakenness. So verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey... Which I swore to give to their fathers and they have eaten and are full and grown fat. They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. We saw this same idea proclaimed in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The people of Israel are going to get fat and full on the goodness of God. And then they're going to forget him. They're going to forsake him. And, and our first reaction is, is this. How could they? Right? How could they? He, he didn't let their sandals wear down on their feet. He, he clothed them for 40 years in the wilderness and, and fed them from heaven. How could they forsake the God who rescued them from slavery? How could they? But aren't we prone to do the same? I mean, aren't we prone to forget and forsake our God? Could it be said of us that we are fat and full and forgetful? I mean, we have so much, don't we? Our God has been good and generous to us, hasn't he? The the problem is not with God. The problem is not with his gifts. The problem is with us. And it's our life's struggle that we worship the creator and not the creation. It's our life's struggle to remember that we're dependent On him, not independent of him. When when was the last time you prayed, give us this day our daily bread? I mean, do you ask God to supply you with food? Or have you been depending upon your own sufficiency? Have you gone through a day without prayer? I mean, do we we really think we can model what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our own strength? We don't really believe that. We, We don't really believe that, but... Sometimes that's exactly how we act when we go through our day without praying and asking God to help us live and love like Jesus. I mean, think back yet again to our scripture reading from Hebrews 13. We don't really think we can go through our day expressing brotherly love to one another on our own strength, right? Because some of us are really difficult to live, uh, love, we don't really think we can go through our own day expressing brotherly love, showing hospitality, caring for those in prison, protecting marriage through sexual fidelity, and guarding against being lovers of money without prayerful dependence upon God, do we? I mean, it's not written in Scripture that you've got to begin your day in prayer, but, but when we do, aren't we basically saying, I've got this, God? I mean, I'm good. I mean, don't we all know how that turns out? We heard our brother Clark Coley preach on this a few weeks back, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, prayer is how we express humility and dependence upon God. And it's one of his appointed means that reminds us that all we have is from him. All that we need is found in him. And the reason that God called Moses to write this song is that Israel is going to get fat and full on the goodness of God only to forsake him. This was true. They they, they really did this. And you can keep reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament records Israel's sad history of abandoning Yahweh and his covenant. And after Israel had entered the promised land and established the kingdom, the monarchy, they eventually turned away from God. They they worshipped other gods. And Yahweh's prophets advocated for repentance and, and return to faithfulness to God and his covenant. They, they advocated for loyalty. But sadly, Israel would not repent and return. And in response to unbelieving Israel forsaking the Lord, the Lord forsook unbelieving Israel. So we're told there in verses 17 and 18. And, and that is what took place. It was especially evident in, the, in that period of time known as the exile, where the people of Israel were removed from their land. And there, there are two principal punishments in view here in these verses. Uh, first, God's curses, the curses that have been enumerated in the book of Deuteronomy, would fall upon Israel. And second, God would remove his presence from his holy temple. God would remove himself from his people. And he would remove his people from his place. That is perhaps the most devastating consequence of abandoning God, that he would remove himself from the presence of his people. If this was the reason for the song, then the question is, what's the role of this song to play in the life of Israel? What was the function, what was to be the function of these lyrics? Look, look at verse 19. It tells us, doesn't it? Verse 19, now therefore, write the song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that, here's the purpose, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Now, now what does that mean? What does it mean for these lyrics to be a witness against Israel? It means that the people of Israel go about their lives getting fat and full and forsaking Yahweh. This song will positively and actively testify to the truth of their rebellion. What does a witness in court do? He doesn't sit silently on the stand. No, he, he proclaims what he has seen and heard. Think about this in relation to the, to the New Testament Gospels, right? Uh, they're eyewitness accounts. Uh, but their writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they've often been called the four evangelists. Why? Because they're, they're not merely trying to restate the facts, but they're also positively bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The Lord makes sure that we don't miss the role of these lyrics through repetition in verse 21. The Lord wants these lyrics to confront Israel as a witness. And is it not interesting that he wants it to live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring? In other words, this song was going to be sung by their children as a witness to their parents. As fathers and mothers were going about their idolatrous worship in Israel, their little ones would be singing the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And as they did, they would be confronting their parents in their sin. And this still happens today, doesn't it? I mean... Often our children make kind of an an innocent little comment to us and, and the Lord can use that to convict us. Uh, we're going about our days, and then out of the mouths of our kids comes a phrase that we've kind of told them over and over and over again. You know, you're washing dishes, because this happens to you, not me, but you're washing dishes, and, and you're grumbling under your breath, this is delicious, Lord, but why does it have to stick to the pan? And your children swing by the kitchen and sing, do everything without complaining, like, uh, you know, they, they can convict us, and such witnessing is a mercy of God to us, confronting us, in our sin. And just a a side note of application here, uh, songs are catchy and memorable. Uh, They're also not just for kids. Um, They're for adults, too. So the song of Deuteronomy 32 would have been sung by children and adults. Um, And if you'd like to memorize scripture or a catechism, consider getting some scripture memory songs set to music. They're wonderfully effective. Um, God's word was to be memorized, repeated, and sung by his people. And we should probably give ourselves to this same practice. Children, youth, young adults, go ahead and keep singing God's word to your parents, to us. We, we need to hear it. Uh, keep learning God's truth. And we, we want to teach you God's word and God's truth. This is part of the reason that we practice scripture memory in some of our, our Sunday school classes. It's part of the reason why we sing some of the same songs in service over and over and over again. When you grow up, I pray that God brings to your minds truths like we've sung together this morning. I pray that in your old age that these words will be a great comfort to you. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not. I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. I pray that you would remember those words and sing them with joy in your old age. This song, the song that we find in Deuteronomy 32, was to be a witness against Israel. And for those who were truly believers, they would hear it. They would be convicted and turn back to covenant faithfulness. That's part of the role that this song would play too. For those who were not true believers, these lyrics and the lads singing them would serve as witnesses in God's case against covenant unfaithfulness. But this call for covenant faithfulness, or we could call it a call for covenant loyalty, is the most urgent plea of Deuteronomy 31. And it really is the most urgent plea of the whole book of Deuteronomy. And that's what we turn to consider in verses 24 to 29. Our third point is entitled, Loyalty. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 29. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while i am yet alive with you you have been rebellious against the lord how much more after my death assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that i may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them for i know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that i have commanded you and then the days to come evil will befall you because You will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. In these verses, we learn that Moses not only completed the lyrics of the song, but he also finished writing the book of the law. And along with the song, the law served as a witness against Israel. Did you catch the third witness that's disclosed here in Deuteronomy 31? The third witness is mentioned there in verse 28. Yes, Moses even called heaven and earth to witness against the people of Israel. God is piling up the witness list against the people of Israel. In fact, he's, he's actually operating in accordance with his own law revealed in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. There we read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Well, what's the point of all these witnesses? They will testify to Israel's loyalty or disloyalty to their covenant with Yahweh. Moses, repeating Yahweh twice, tells Israel their future. In verse 27, he says, for I know. And then in verse 29, you see there, he says it again. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. Not only does Moses predict their unfaithfulness, he also predicts God's judgment. We've seen this before in the book of Deuteronomy. We saw it back in in Deuteronomy 29. Let's remember that in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, Moses said this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The Lord knows the future, and Israel knows the future. They too have been informed. But they can choose life. They can choose to obey. They should choose to obey. They are responsible to obey. They should remain loyal to Yahweh. They should choose life. Those who were true believers in Israel would hear these warnings from God and they would be encouraged to trust and obey. They would even give themselves to encouraging others to trust and obey. That's what believers do when they hear warnings in God's word. If the people of Israel did not obey, then the charge would be made. The witnesses would be brought forward to to testify, and Israel would be convicted and condemned and cursed. But what about us? I mean, set aside the song for a moment, and let's ask the question. Could the law of God testify against you? If your life were measured against the law of God, that thing that was witnessing against Israel... If your life were measured against the law of God, what would it reveal? Have you always perfectly honored your father and your mother? That's the fifth commandment. Have you lied? Have you ever lied? That's the ninth. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? That's the eighth commandment. Have you ever been angry at someone else? Jesus uh, says, as we prayed earlier this morning, Jesus says, that's murdering another one in your heart. That's the sixth commandment. Have you ever looked upon someone who is not your spouse with lust? Jesus says that's adultery. That's the seventh commandment. The truth is that if the law bore witness against us, it would declare that we are people who deserve to be punished and cursed as Israel deserved to be punished and cursed by God. With the law of God and even our own consciences bearing witness against us, what do we need? We need an advocate. We need a witness who will be for us, not against us. Christians, believers in Jesus have such an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a witness for us, not against us. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on the, the bottom of page 944, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And, and as we prepare to, to read this section of God's word, this section of Paul's letter, um, you need to know that he has just been. Paul has just been mentioning to believers their their hope of future glory. Um, friend, if you're you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This can be your hope too. This hope of future glory can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. So so listen listen closely to what Paul says. This wonderful hope that we have, we we do have a wonderful hope. Paul has been talking in this letter about how believers in Jesus have been delivered from the, the penalty and power of sin. And he's looked forward to the hope of being delivered from the presence of sin. It's a wonderful hope. But, but how sure, I mean, how sure really is that hope? Since we're so filled with sin now, couldn't the person next to you bear witness to the fact that you're a sinner? How sure is this hope? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now just pause your reading for a moment. Did you hear what Paul just said? Who can condemn those who are hidden in Jesus Christ? Who can condemn those whom God has justified, declared righteous, judicially declared righteous by their faith union, With Jesus Christ. By their faith in Jesus Christ. Who who can condemn? No one. You see when we place our faith in Jesus. His life of loyalty. Lived unto God the Father. Is credited to our account. His sinless life becomes ours. His righteous deeds become ours. Jesus bore the curse of God on the cross. He died. He was forsaken for the sins of his people so that we would never be forsaken. He was exiled from the land of the living so that we might enter into the promised land of heaven by his resurrection from the dead. And right now he is interceding for his people. Do you see that there? Paul says that he's interceding. Paul doesn't say he has interceded for us or will intercede for us, though both are certainly true. No, he says that the king of creation, the reigning redeemer, who is dead but now lives and is seated at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Christian, do you want to know who bears witness for you? It's Jesus. He is ever saying to the Father, Mine. That sheep is mine. He is mine. She is mine. I've called them by name. Friend, has Jesus called you by name? He has if you've confessed that you're a sinner and that he is your savior. So friend, repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Who will say no to this king? Who can overrule the king? That's the picture that Paul paints of Jesus here. Jesus is the the risen and reigning king. He's seated at God's right hand. And so, so Paul asks in verse 35, pick up your reading. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Pause. We are more than conquerors through our own strength, just like Israel, were, Israel were, they, they were conquerors in the, the conquest of Canaan through their own strength. Well, no, we are not conquerors in our own strength. We are we're not even merely conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus loves you, Christian. Now watch how Paul mentions things in heaven. He's just mentioned things on earth, right? All these tribulations, stress, persecution, famine, nakedness. Now watch him turn to heaven. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we conclude, pu- puzzle over this question again. Who can bring any charge against God's people? A new covenant order has come in Jesus. Who can witness against us when our God is for us? Paul says, nothing and no one in all creation. Heaven and earth cannot witness against us. No, the the king of heaven and earth has given us his own righteousness. The king of heaven and earth intercedes for us. His life of perfect loyalty and love to God the Father are ours. He is not against us. Jesus is for us. He will not leave us or forsake us. He cannot. For he is leading us home. You see, the Lord Jesus is our Joshua. And he will see to it that we make it into the promised land of heaven. And this is why we we live lives as best we can by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit of of loyalty unto the Lord Jesus. And and as we go, we we are being taught to sing a new song, to sing the song of the saints in Revelation chapter five, verse 12. This is what we are being taught to sing each day in our lives. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Brothers and sisters, let us give our lives to this one who has lived a perfect life of loyalty for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, our great Joshua so much better than Joshua. He has given and assured us of the rest that we have in him, a heavenly rest. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that each day you would make our hearts sing with praise for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that by the grace and help of your spirit, that you would cause us to be loyal unto him each day until he brings us home to heaven. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, brothers, and sisters, our final song is number three hundred and thirty-eight. How firm a foundation! Um, let me go. Ahead, let me encourage you. To go ahead and pull that. Uh, pull your hymnal out and turn to number three hundred and thirty-eight. There. Well, in Deuteronomy thirty-one, uh, this morning we we saw. How the Lord promised to be with Israel and Joshua in the conquest. that They had no, they had no need to fear. And we have no need to fear. Uh, in, in this song, we bring the words of Deuteronomy 31 and Hebrews 13 into our hearts and mouths. And we sing that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So let's sing number 338. Um, how firm a foundation. Please stand as we sing.